Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to the latest episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. It's part two of my conversation with the author Nick Hornby of Fever Pitch, High Fidelity, and About a Boy fame, and so many other wonderful books. Nick Hornby is one of those writers who you'd like to have a cup of coffee with. His story is as compelling as the stories in his novels. In the first episode, we discussed our mutual love of the 1982 film Diner, Nick's growing up outside London, and going off to Cambridge, where he focused on music and football, soccer for us Americans, as opposed to making professional contacts, which he says was the chief reason why everyone else went to Cambridge. A few years out of university and unable to shake the writing bug, he had a conversation that pretty much opened the window to the rest of his life. Can you tell me about the conversation with an agent, I believe, in which you're talking and pitching one idea, and then, as I understand it, you get around to what would become Fever Pitch, like in the last five minutes? Yeah. I'd started uh, being published very slowly. Mostly, um, I, I sold a couple of short stories, and I, saw, uh, I started writing book reviews, uh, a couple for a literary magazine that got noticed, and I was asked to write for... Uh, a couple of newspapers, and the, and I met this agent at a party, and and she read my stuff, and she said, oh, you know, if you ever have a book idea, come in and see me. So I thought, right, this is it. And um, she was, and still is, um, quite quite. She's not my agent anymore, but um, she she's still working, and she's uh, quite eccentric and and quite posh, and. Um, and the idea I'd had already was for Fever Pitch, you know, that I'd been thinking about this idea. Was it possible to tell um, an autobiography, a memoir, through football match reports and saying things about other things at the time, which is uh, masculinity and, and nationality and all kinds of things, my relationship with my dad. But I... This lady didn't seem like the right person uh, to pitch this book to. So I went in with with a very sketchily um, formed idea for a novel, uh, which I hadn't thought long enough about. And um, it, it did involve music. But I started, I went in to see her, I started talking about it. I could see her eyes glazing over. <laughs> and uh, And I thought, oh, what the hell? Um, I'll tell her about the football book. And, you know, because I had nothing else. And to her eternal credit, her eyes suddenly lit up. And she said, oh, I could sell that. And I thought, what? <laughs> and <laughs> that's what happened. The beauty of Fever Pitch, amongst its many beauties, is when I read it, uh, I did not know one player that you referred to. Yeah. And it did not matter that I, I, that I, book. I I read this book as if I was. Oh, this is me and the New York Rangers hockey team interspersing my social life and then later my love life or my alleged love life. Yeah, yeah. In, You know, along with oh, the Rangers beat the Canadians four to two, and yeah. I, I look back on a diary that I kept, I think, in sixth grade, and. The diary pretty much was, oh, so and so is a cool kid. He listens to WNEW FM, the cool station, uh -huh. and 
the Rangers beat the Red Wings. That's, that's, that's the diet. Yeah, yeah. That's, which, to me, what's important in life? There you yeah. go, music and sports. And you just so, don't know the to turn that into a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> if, if, like my teenage scrappy, yes. Well, if you, by, if by the way, you mean talent. Uh, yes, <laughs> I didn't have the talent. Um, maybe, well, but, it, but, but no, I make a, the point is that that, I, I understand that, it maybe it could have been or was a tough sell in the United States, at least initially, uh, because of that. But I, I think the beauty in the book is, of course, if you know who the players are, then it resonates yeah. in a different way. Yeah. But they're characters in a story, and it's a beautiful yes, story. Yes, no, exactly, and um, and I think it made a real difference actually, um, because I wrote a proposal and and the opening piece of the book to give to this agent. And uh, this a woman, a woman editor, uh, responded incredibly enthusiastically to it, and um, and so I knew that the first two people who were going to read it were a female editor and a female agent, and that really helped me with the focus of the book. Um, if it had been a guy who had been a you know had season tickets for fifty years. I can imagine me trying to get kind of inside baseball, as it were, with him. Um, but it gave me a great clarity of purpose. I want to explain what it's like to be this person to outsiders. And that's how the book really found an audience, that um, the first wave of people were men saying, this is me. And then there were, it was in Britain and Europe, a second wave of people quite often women saying, my boyfriend, my husband, my brother told me to read this to help me understand him. And um, and she said, and I do understand better than I, than I did. And um, and I think that, that the, the role of those two female professionals so early on in my career really helped the book. How much did the, your own experiences, namely, um did football, and we're using the term football, not to worry, uh, and not even saying American football, none of that nonsense, it's football. Um, going to matches with your father, and then also experiencing football at Cambridge, uh, when, as we've discussed, others had the ridiculous notion of you're going there to study. Yeah. Uh, or to make yourself. Right, right. It was not the main thing for a lot of people. The main thing was making contacts, getting on some kind of ladder. And I wasn't doing that either. Right. So how much do those two experiences, once when you're younger as a boy and going to matches with your dad and then you're being around it at Cambridge, how much do those inform that book? Well, it's interesting because I, I was a terrible student, as I've implied. Um, I, I didn't do well academically. I, I did as little as possible. I made friends. I talked to people. I listened to stuff. I went to watch games. And, um, and actually, the act of being a terrible student, if I look back, provided me with my first two books, probably. Um, uh, Fever pitch and and high fidelity. That uh, those those three years, the time doing nothing, um, helped me to realise who I actually was and what I was interested in, 
and that's what came out. What I wasn't interested in was English literature, which was what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> I referenced the book earlier, 31 Songs. Uh, among the songs that you pick uh, is included a song from an album that pretty much got me through high school, Late for the Sky by Jackson Brown, and One Man Guy by Rufus Wainwright, written by his, his dad, Loudon yeah. Wainwright III, the great Loudon Wainwright III, and also uh, Thunder Road, uh, and we could speak, spend a week and a half talking about that song and yeah. that album yeah. as well. Um, so the second book is musically oriented, of course, High Fidelity, uh, a brilliant book. And for those of us, again, who grew up with an equal love of sports and music, it was right up our alley. I'm curious, after that, the notion of writing about characters who perhaps are not like you, is it is that a conscious thing? Okay, I've written these two books. They've done well. They're they're really they're beautiful books. Uh, that's not opinion. That's fact. But these characters are kind of based on me in a sense, uh, not completely, but in a sense. Now it's time to write about characters, and I need to like either develop that muscle or strengthen that muscle about writing about characters who are not me. Is that a conscious or more subtle thing? Well, I think you'd probably have to describe it as conscious because uh, when it comes to thinking of a third book um, and what I'm going to write about, the subject of me uh, and my interests seem to have been exhausted um, <laughs> um, by me and, and there was nothing I could think of in that vein that would enthuse me or, or felt like fresh territory. I felt that I'd done... Certainly what I had to say about football in Fever Pitch. Um, High Fidelity was originally conceived as a relationship novel, believe it or not. And at the last minute, uh, as I was planning it, I thought, what job can this guy do? <laughs> 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 and then it kind of took over to a certain extent. Um, and so I did have interest in people and I did have an interest in um, writing for the rest of my life. So it, it all came together as the thought of, I'm going to have to stop writing about me and I'm going to have to start looking and I'm going to have to start using other elements of my life. And um, uh, About a Boy was um, it, it certainly in part inspired by teaching. I'm not going to say that I like About a Boy, but I'll tell you a quick story that when my wife and I in 2001, after I had read the book, in 2001, we are flying to Southeast Asia. She had some work there, and uh, it was also going to be our honeymoon. And um, from New York, that's a slightly long flight. Um, and they had eight movies, and but they kept on showing them on a loop. And uh, when I get on, I had already seen About a Boy that summer. Uh, and... Uh, I get on and it's there. And so, oh, this is great. I'm going to watch it again. And then I watched parts of it about six times during the 23 hours. <laughs> crying at the same scene, you know, the guitar scene, crying, you know. And my wife would look over and say, are, are you watching that again? I was like, yeah, of course I am. Now, the, the notion of art, the beauty of art to me is, in, in interviewing musicians, actors, writers, uh, people whose work goes out into the world and you know some of the impact because it's tangible and financial and that's great. Mm -hmm. 
But in another sense, someone tonight will pick up High Fidelity or About a Boy or any of your books for the first time and be enchanted by it. Is that, is, first of all, is there a first tangible time when you're out getting groceries or something and you, or on, on uh, uh, as we call it, the subway here or the train and you see someone reading your work and having a tangible response to it? Uh, I've seen people read on, um, on planes and subways and buses. Um, uh, I haven't seen them laugh or cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so usually I stop watching, uh, <laughs> watching their faces to, uh, in case I get too put off writing anything ever again. Um, I think with Fever Pitch and High, well, those first two, three books, um, the the big thrill of seeing it jump generations. Um, because, of course, at the time, I thought, I hope people like my age read this book. They will understand right. it best. Um, and then as you get older, you realize that my age is no longer my age. It's their age. And, and it's still <laughs> making sense to them. And, um, and I know from, from doing signings that um, young people have read Fever Pitch and High Fidelity. And, you know, those books are 30 years old now. And um, and they're still in print, and they're in print, I think, because they are being discovered by a new audience. So um, that that is such a thrill. Hmm. I read, or maybe I heard in a previous interview that you said, uh, if a book is not enthralling, stop reading it. Yeah. And uh, this gives me great comfort because I've had periods of my life where I'm going to have a Hemingway summer. And become a better human being and read for whom the bell tolls read the sun also rises and i get to page 100 and i look around and say do i have to finish this and i don't feel great about me as a human being because of that but now that you a writer who i love has said this you've given me aid and comfort thank you so much for that well i feel so passionately about that um because so much of our reading lives, and you talk to people about their reading lives, is a sense of duty. They know they should read. Uh, they know they should read the books that are being talked about in newspapers. Uh, they know they should have read classics, and they haven't, and they should try that. And as a consequence, reading becomes a different kind of leisure activity. It's something you put off doing subconsciously, TV is your entertainment or movies or music or dining out. And reading is something that gets shoehorned into holidays and uh, bedtime. Um, But it's mostly because you're not feeling a sense of connection with the book. And and books have to be regarded by the consumer as part of entertainment. And if they're not, then books are lost. Those books that became part of the canon were all bestsellers. I mean, Dickens, you know, I wrote this little book about Dickens and Prince, but uh, Dickens was a huge popular bestseller. Um, Shakespeare wrote to please crowds and keep his theatre companies going. Um, Mm -hmm. This is how a lot of art gets made. And if it survives, it's because it hits generation after generation after generation. 
Not because it's won a prize and people give up reading it after 50 pages. <laughs> uh, you eventually got around to writing songs with your friend <laughs> yeah. Ben Folds. And I'm curious if in that process, it gave you a different outlook on music criticism, which you've done as well. I don't mean criticism. I mean, like, <laughs> writing about music. Uh, I don't think particularly. It gave me more of an insight into what's important in songwriting, I think, um, which is the music. <laughs> uh, I mean, Ben has such a melodic gift. It's incredible. And... Of course, I tried with the lyrics. Um, I think when a lyricist is being brought in, uh, then you have to offer something more than I love you, I love you, I love you. Otherwise, what are you doing there? So <laughs> I used up a lot of short story ideas, things like that, for for that album, Lonely Avenue. And um, so they were kind of okay, and Ben's discipline was not to touch them if he if he could help it. He didn't ever suggest reshaping it. <laughs> but there were some days where I, I sent him a lyric and I would get a fully formed song back in 24 hours. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how uh, quickly and thoroughly he worked. And, you know, he's a great drummer. He's a great bass player. He's a pianist. So he'd just go around in his little studio recording all the parts, sent it back. So what do you think of this? And I was like, oh, my God. Imagine being able to do that. So you didn't have, to use a word you used earlier, the chutzpah to say to him, you know, Ben, that's an A flat there. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you might want to go with a C major seventh there. I'm so sorry, you know. Or have you heard that piano tuned recently? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, I may have to write that one down. Uh, so, but everybody, let's face it, even Ben Folds, everybody needs their Bernie Toppin, you know? So. Well, I think, Ben, um, the thing that slows him down is ideas for songs, which are much harder to come by than tunes right. for him. So he could take an album out of having to think of characters and situations and things he wanted to say, because he's quite a narrative songwriter as well. And, and you know, it's like a free pass for him. He just gets to focus on music uh, and someone else has provided the, the ideas for the songs and um, uh, I, I loved it and um, I wrote a song for the next Ben Folds 5 album and how this started was I wrote two songs for his uh, William Shatner album. Uh, ben Folds produced an album for William Shatner and I've got two lyrics on that and that was how our glorious adventure started. <laughs> Are there lessons from the early years, either growing up or the years when you're taking the train into London, or at Cambridge, or when you're struggling to be a writer? Are there any lessons from those years that do you think still pertain today in the process of writing? I think, regrettably, I've discovered that wasting time is um, an incredibly important part of certainly my artistic process, and I imagine quite a lot of people's as well, that um, <clears throat> it's when things come to you without knowing it and, and when you're spending time reading magazine articles or a novel or listening to a bit of music that is going to somehow 
produce some kind of chemistry that results in something else. And, um, and so I've stopped worrying and beating myself up about not doing stuff because I, I, I do work steadily and I do produce a reasonable amount. Um, but those years at university and, and the, the years between university and being published, uh, they, they were really important, even though they were agonizing at the time. Um, and of course, none of it meant that I would have gone on to do anything or be published or, or, or write screenplays where the movies got made. But I don't think I could have tried without that time. So when it eventually did happen, were you able to just take a second or a, a moment and, and think, I had this idea and it happened? Are you able to do that? Were you able to do that? Or is it always on to the, oh, where's the next book coming from? Uh, I, I've certainly taken satisfaction in backing my own judgment. Um, I mean, Fever Pitch taught me that. Um, I think in education, the movie uh, that I wrote taught me that, that they were kind of, you know, scrappy underdogs and... Um, uh, but I thought there was something in, in them, and, and both of them were extremely important for the career that unfolded afterwards. So um, I do get that, but I think I got really um, damned up when I wasn't published for the first 35 years of my life, uh, 34 years, whatever it was. A lot of stuff got built up behind that dam, and, and, and when it came down... Um, I feel like I'm making up for lost time, hence the sort of the flow of creativity since then. Well, we are really glad that that dam came down. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for this time. I so appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Nick Hornby, his most recent book, Dickens and Prince, is now out in paperback. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.